Hey, good to see you. I didn't know if my, my table was coming out or not today, but it was all right. How are you doing? Good. Good. What if in America today, what we thought we knew and called Christianity wasn't really what it was? What if we had kind of invented our own kind of religion in a way? Do you think that's possible? You see, that's what had happened back in the time of the New Testament when Jesus was here, when Paul was sharing. We'd kind of, uh, we looked at that and they've kind of invented their own religion. It wasn't really what God gave to Abraham and to the Jewish people. They'd kind of come up with their own thing. I think sometimes we've done that even in America. Today's message is going to be kind of controversial. I want it to really make you think. That's my job as your pastor. You know, the Bible says that God's ways are so far above ours that we don't even really comprehend them. And that's, that's really true. I think we'll find that out today. I want you to pull out your sermon notes because I want to talk to you about the Bible in a nutshell. I kind of subtitled it, uh, Do Serial Killers Go to Heaven? Okay, and there's a reason why I, I put that in there. 25 years ago, one of America's most notorious serial killers was attacked and killed while cleaning a prison bathroom. His name was Jeffrey Dahmer. Have you heard of Jeffrey Dahmer? Some have, some haven't. Um, few people mourned his death. In fact, most people celebrated his death. One Episcopal theologian, Kendall Harmon, said that after Dahmer's uh, November 28th, 1994 slaying, that he said they're celebrating. They're absolutely sure he will burn in hell because that's what happens to people like him. But did Jeffrey Dahmer go to hell? You see, Kurt Booth was a guy in Oklahoma who saw Dahmer after he was arrested, put in jail and jailed for life. And in one interview they had of him, he said, I just wish I could find some peace. And Kurt Booth said, I know who brings peace. And so he sent some correspondence to Dahmer. It was how to know God. It was how to know Jesus. And um, he began to have a correspondence back and forth with Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer. He, he called some pastors in Madison, uh, Wisconsin, where the prison where Jeffrey Dahmer was, but most of them were too scared to go talk to him, you know? I mean, this was a serial killer after all, right? Uh, but one pastor did, and his name was Roy Ratcliffe, and Roy Ratcliffe said that he had a weekly Bible study with Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer stepped into a relationship with Christ and was baptized there in the prison just a couple, three months before he was murdered. And they wrote an article after that, talked about how Jeffrey Dahmer would be in heaven. All kinds of letters poured in. It's offensive that anyone would say that God would forgive him. It's offensive to think that Dahmer isn't burning in hell forever, these letters said. If anyone deserves hell, it's him. And I don't think that we would necessarily disagree, at least we can sure understand those sentiments. Before we dive into today's passage, I want to start with a, a simple theological quiz. It's right there in front of you, all right? It's a multiple choice question. How good do you have to be, or do you have to be to go to heaven? How good do you have to be to go to heaven? A, pretty good. B, really good. C, better than a serial killer. Or D, perfect. 
We're going to look at two parallel passages. One is in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. A lot of people said it seems like there's a whole other God in the Old Testament. The other one is in Romans in the New Testament. And it's Paul quoting and adding to what Moses said in Deuteronomy. Here's the thing I want you to know. Write this down. If you're going to understand the Bible in a nutshell, you have to know something about God that you don't know, that you might not know. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. Remember, he's talking about his people and how they've kind of come up with their own religion. He says, they do not know God's righteousness. And all the time they're going about trying to prove their own righteousness, they have the wrong attitude to receive his. They underestimated is really what the word is. They underestimated God's righteousness. They underestimated how holy God is. They didn't know how righteous God is. The people in Paul's day felt like that God was more tolerant of sin than he really was. And they thought they could be good enough. They could serve their fellow man. They could get their good to outweigh their bad. They thought that they could be good enough for God's tolerant standard and they didn't realize that he had this infinitely high standard that they could never reach. Here's the thing, when you underestimate God's righteousness, it causes you to underestimate his love. It causes you to underestimate our sin. It causes us to underestimate Jesus and all that he came to do. See, because they didn't know how holy God really was, they pulled God down to their level and said, we're probably going to be okay because this is what we feel like God requires. Paul called it trying to prove their own righteousness. Now, what's interesting is that's an error made by billions of people in our world today who do not understand how holy God is. You see, the answer to our little quiz is D, according to the Bible. D, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. And I don't mean sort of perfect, you know, mostly perfect, 80% perfect. Uh, being 80% perfect is kind of like being 80% pregnant. It doesn't, you know, you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, right? You're either perfect or not perfect. And the kicker kind of is that 99.9% of the world kind of would say the answer to our little quiz is A or B or even maybe C. Most people would say it's A, pretty good on the relative goodness scale. And it's interesting because we kind of compare ourselves to people around us, right? And, and then there's someone like Jeffrey Dahmer that comes along. And so Jeffrey Dahmer is drowning in 5,000 feet of water, right? And I'm drowning in 50 feet of water. And I'm looking over and go, well, at least I'm a whole lot better than that, right? I mean, I am not a serial killer. I've only killed like one person, you know? It's like, you, you look at that and, and, and you're going like, I'm better than you know, Uncle Joe over here, or Frank over there, or this guy, you know, over here. And I'm probably gonna live, they're probably not gonna make it. The thing is, all of us are drowning. We don't know how to swim, and we're drowning. We need someone to rescue us. God's goodness demands perfection. Now that's kind of a shocking thought, because we live in this <clears throat> totally imperfect world and the very idea of perfection is really kind of hard to grasp, isn't it? Do you have to be perfect to go to heaven? Most will answer 
No, but the answer according to God is yes. God is so holy, so righteous, that he can't even have sin in his presence. Sin in his presence is just reduced to ashes and dust. And all of us, the Bible said, have sinned. We've all fallen short, is another verse in Romans. We've fallen short of the glory of God, of the glory of what God intended for us to be. God's standard is absolute perfection in thought, in deed, 100% of the time. So it feels like there's this huge predicament, you know? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is about to die. The, the, the people of Israel are about to step across the Jordan and go into the promised land for the very first time. This is after all those 40 years circling around in the wilderness, all that stuff that's going on. And Moses says, you have a decision to make. You have to decide, are you gonna choose life or choose death? And it's so interesting in these chapters leading up to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, it has all of these curses. If you choose death, these curses will come upon you. And the curses are ferocious. I mean, they're vicious. They're, you, you just get a few verses in and you're going, okay, I think I get it, you know? And then the blessings come. If you choose life, the blessings, and the blessings are so amazing, so I mean, mind-blowing. It's led a lot of biblical scholars to say that Deuteronomy must have been written by more than one person. I had an Old Testament professor at Baylor that, that, that said he thought that part of Deuteronomy was written uh, before the exile of the Jews to Babylon because he was writing uh, uh, all these good things about God. That was the blessings. And then after the exile, when they were down on God and upset and worried and couldn't figure things out. They wrote all the curses. One guy even said, this is not a, a coherent view of a being. How could a being be so just and so loving at the same time? But here's the thing about Deuteronomy. I believe it was written by Moses, most of it. And Moses wrote this thing and what it does, it begins, it's a beautiful book that begins to hold the tension for the very first time that the Bible lets us hold all down through the Old Testament into the New Testament. It, it, it's a tension between God's goodness and his love for us, his creation, and his perfect justice and holiness. And so there's this tension that as you begin to look at it, you're trying to figure out Moses said God's goodness demands perfection, and then basically chapter 30 says, but you're going to fail. Write that down. Now, when all these blessings and curses I've set before you come on you, is what Moses said. He says, when you fail and the curses come on you, you're gonna fail. You're gonna experience the curses. We love motivational speakers, you know, and, but what if you went to one and he just said, you're gonna fail. And I'm just wasting my breath talking to you. You're going to fail. I, I know it. And then he walked off. You went, what? Why did I spend all this money for that? Right? That's kind of what Moses did. But what's interesting, Moses is saying, you know what you ought to do, but you're not going to do it. Jacob Needleman is a secular philosopher. He wrote a, 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 an essay one time called, Why Can't We Be Good? And he wasn't a believer or anything, but he says, Social 
theorists, therapists, politicians are all writing books about how we ought to live. Only one thing they're forgetting. Everyone knows how they ought to live, but they just don't do it. They can't do it. One of the biggest mysteries, says Needleman, of the human race is that we know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pippert talks about taking a psychology class at Harvard, and the prof was talking about a man who, who realized how much his life was dominated by this extreme anger toward his mother. And so she raised her hand and she said, that's great, prof, but how do you help him? How do you help him forgive? He said, what do you mean? Well, how do you help him, you know, forgive his mother? And she said, she'll never forget. The professor said, whoa, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. Psychology can't help you do what you ought to do. It can point out the problem, but psychology doesn't change a heart. You know what's interesting? We so often don't even live up to our own standards. I talk to Americans all the time who get so up in arms and unhappy about the idea of a judgment day. You know, the Bible talks about a judgment day as if God would have the gall to judge us, you know? And, and here's the question he's just gonna ask us according to scripture on, on judgment day. Did you step into my provision for you that I brought to you by my mercy because of my great love for you at great cost to myself? And many people will say, no. Maybe you're here and you say, well, I didn't, I, I don't, I didn't understand this Jesus thing. It doesn't make sense to me. I never really took the time to investigate it. But we have this sense in which we want to say, but that's not fair, you know? I mean, what if my family wasn't religious? What if, what if I, I grew up in, in some other place that wasn't a Christian country? I want justice. God, I need you to be fair. Here's the thing about God. The Bible says God is always fair. I think the thing that amazes us about God, sometimes we sing amazing grace, but we're not amazed by grace. We're amazed by his justice. I, I heard an illustration on justice a while back. R.C. Sproul was a, a professor at a Christian university, and he said he had a group of freshmen come into his class, and he said, I want you to know we have three projects. The first project is due October 1st. The second one, November 1st, and the last one, December 1st, and that's each one is 33 and one-third percent of your grade. If you turn it in one second late, it's a zero. So he said, on October 1st, most people had their paper, but there were about 10 freshmen that were outside in the hallway looking really anxious. And they said, Dr. Sproul, we, we, we haven't, we haven't, we ha we're, we're just freshmen and we, we, weren't, we lost track of time and could we just have another day or so? We'll get it in at least by tomorrow. And he said, all right. He said, November 1st came around and there was like 25 freshmen out in the hall. And they said, it's like midterms and all this stuff's going on. And, and, and Dr. Sproul, could we just have a little more time? And he said, all right, freshman class, you know, you can have a little more time. He said, December 1st came and out of this class of about 150 nonchalant freshmen didn't have their paper turned in. And they said, no sweat, Dr. Sproul will get it in at least by tomorrow. And so he just started going down the road and he said, Dr. He, 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 he said, Mr. Greenberg, he said, 
did you turn your paper in today? And he said, no, but I'll have it for you first thing tomorrow. And he said, that's all right. You don't need to bring it. Zero. And he went down several names and they didn't have zero. And, and then Mr. Greenberg said, that's not fair. I want justice. I want justice. And Dr. Sproul looked at Greenberg and he said, Mr. Greenberg, do I understand that you want justice? And he said, yes. He goes, as I recall, you turned in your last two papers late. And he goes, right. And he said, all right, I'm going to go back. Zero, zero, zero. Anybody else want justice? He said, it was weird. Nobody else wanted justice after that. You see, justice doesn't look like what we think it looks like sometimes we, we we get enamored because we say you know my God is a God of love and God is a God of love but he's also a God of perfect justice and you know here, here, here's the thing in Romans chapter 2 Paul talks about judgment day he says this for instance some outsiders who are not required to follow the law often live quite naturally by its teachings even though the law wasn't given to them, in themselves they have the law. Here's the thing. Their lives demonstrate that God has inscribed the law's teachings on their hearts. On judgment day, their consciences will testify for them and their thoughts will both accuse and defend them. The good news given to me declares that this affirmation and accusation will take place on that day when God, through Jesus, the anointed one, judges every person's life's secrets. Here's what Paul basically is saying in our vernacular today. Imagine, I want you, this is hard to imagine, but imagine that Siri or Google is listening to you all the time. Hard to even comprehend, right? And Siri records every time you say to other people, you ought, you ought to do this. You ought to live this way. And so what Siri is recording is your own moral standards that you impose upon others. What you believe is right or wrong. On judgment day, if you've never heard of Jesus, Paul is saying, God's gonna say, well, I'm just and fair, and here's how I'm gonna judge you. Hey, Siri, you didn't know God, you Siri, did you? I would ask that you address your spiritual questions to someone more qualified to comment. <laughs> that, is, that is really funny. Um, I would ask that you address your spiritual questions to someone more qualified, Siri just told me. I didn't expect that, that was funny. Totally stunned at the moment. Okay, Siri. And he's gonna say, play back all of those oughts. And what's interesting is that Paul is saying not a single one of us is gonna measure up to our own oughts. We'll be judged by our own conscience. We'll be judged by, by our own self and what we thought we didn't even measure up to what we believe is the standard. And so there's this tension that we feel between a, a loving God that is holy and just and a sinful, guilty human race. You know, people say, I read the Bible and it, it feels like there are two gods represented here there, there there's this God that you know that is judge judging and then there's this God that's so loving this is what makes the Bible great there's this tension and it lets us sit in this tension feel the tension all through the Bible Paul says because people are 
ignorant. That means we don't know, we don't realize how holy God is. It makes us ignorant of how much love God showed when Jesus came. He goes on in the next verse, he said, for Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness by the law, for everyone who believes in him. So it's only in this tension, Paul is saying, between the holiness of God and our sinfulness, that the profound ugliness of the cross makes any sense at all. Have you tried to watch The Passion of the Christ in a movie? I mean, I could barely take it too much. Why would God do that? Why would God allow that? It's because it took the cross to satisfy the tension between total mercy and total justice. A a lady in Mexico City, when Laura and I were serving as missionaries there, she said, you know, I'm Catholic because all of us Mexicans were Catholic. And and I believe Jesus was the son of God and that he did the things it says in the Bible. But I believe there are many ways to God. And I said, wow, then you must believe that God is like a masochist or, or, or just, you know, into cruelty. And she goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, the Bible teaches that you believe that God tore his heart out. It was Jesus. The two, are, you know, they're one. And, and he allowed that heart to come to earth and die on a cross for us. And if you saw like the passion of the Christ and you saw all of the stuff he went through, that was just like a flea bite compared to what the Bible says was going on in eternity as God actually turned his back, as God turned away from Christ. You know, if someone close to you turns away from you, it hurts a lot. If your wife says, I'm done and I'm leaving and turns away, it's gonna affect the rest of your life. But God and Jesus, they had been together from all of eternity past, no one closer. I mean, they were one being. And, and, and the father turned his back on Jesus. It was like hell in that moment. And I said, so you must believe that God, you know, he just enjoys tormenting himself or his son. And, and so he sent Jesus down. He died on the cross. He, he, he took, you know, all of that stuff upon himself. And then God said, well, that was a good way. There's a lot of other ways. Why would he do that? Why would he do that to his son? You see, unless we come to grips with with God's perfect justice and holiness, we'll not ever begin to ever understand the depths of God's love and what Jesus did for us. As his body was destroyed on the cross, what was happening in the spiritual realm was so much more. Paul says, in Romans 10, five and following this. He said, Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. But trusting God to shape the right living in us is a different story. No precarious climb up to heaven to recruit the Messiah. No dangerous descent into hell to rescue the Messiah. So what exactly was Moses saying? The word that saves is right Here, as near as the tongue in your mouth, as close as the heart in your chest. We're feeling like we could climb up to heaven and and, and be okay. We can do it by just being good enough. He's saying, you're not going to get there that way. Or or, or we could, you know, do some great work for God, even going down to hell and rescuing people or something. And, and, And God's saying, Jesus has already been there on the cross for you. The language of self righteousness, Paul is saying, says that Jesus coming, his death, his resurrection, that's all kind of meaningless. 
It's for nothing because we can attain it ourselves. We can be our own savior. And we don't understand, Paul says, everything we need to understand. We don't realize that God is as righteous as he is. In fact, trying to make him more loving, you know, my God, he wouldn't do that. I think God's gonna, you know, it's, it's just gonna be good for everybody. It's kind of like God gets real impersonal and kind of like, yeah, whatever, come on. The Bible says he's super personal. He loved us and yet we failed. And he can't have that sin in his presence or we'd be reduced to ashes. So he tore his heart out because he loves us and he wanted you, little son, to be his, little daughter, to be his. He tore his heart out. Jesus died on the cross. Somehow as he died on the cross, he took the perfect justice of God for us that was written into the fabric of the universe that had to be satisfied. He took our place because God loved us so much. Trying to make God more loving, we end up making him less loving. You can't really get more loving than giving your life, right? And he's saying, this is the way. There's not a way, I'll provide a way. You'll never get here. I'll do it for you. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm reaching out to you. See, they didn't understand Jesus. Jesus offended them because they had dropped the standard of what God's justice was about, of what his perfection demanded. So Jesus came down and he said, God's holier than you think he is. In fact, that's why I'm here. He said to the Pharisees one time, they said, why do you hang out with sinners all the time? He said, it's the sick that need a savior. Not the healthy, but he was kind of being sarcastic. You know, Jesus could be sarcastic sometimes. We always think he's just like, always just really serious, you know. But he was kind of being sarcastic to them. He said, you don't even know you're sick. You're dying and you don't know it. So it doesn't really help me to go to you because you're not gonna take the physician. But the people that already know that they're sick, I'm here for them. And I'm right here with them. And So the Bible continues, look at this. It's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God. Jesus is my master, embracing body and soul, God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting him to do it for you. That's salvation with your whole being, You embrace God setting things right. And then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between him and me. Scripture reassures us. No one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. It's exactly the same, no matter what a person's religious background may be. The same God for all of us, acting the same incredibly generous way to everyone who calls out for help. Everyone who calls help God gets help. God has come near to us. The word that saves is right here. As near as the tongue in your mouth, as close as the heart in your chest. How near is Jesus to those of us that know we need a savior? It's like going to the refrigerator in your own house and getting a drink of living water. It's like going to the pantry and getting a slice of heavenly bread. It's like hearing a knock at the door and going and opening the door. How near is Jesus 
He's as near as these words spoken from your heart. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. It doesn't matter how far away you feel that you are from God. God has done the hard part. In fact, he did all of it. Our job is just to accept what he's done. You say, but Mark, I felt like you were saying that God sends people to hell. Does God send people to hell? The answer is no. But he won't step over your free will if you choose to go there. Let me illustrate just in closing. During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, George Wilson, a a postal clerk, robbed a federal payroll from a train. And in the process, he killed a guard. He went on trial. He was sentenced to hang. Because public sentiment, way back in that day, maybe you didn't know it, but even back in that day, there was a movement uh, against capital punishment. And they, they tried to secure a pardon for him. They had this big petition. And they came before President Jackson. And finally, he actually intervened with a pardon. Amazingly, Wilson refused it. Since this had never happened before, that someone refused a presidential pardon, I don't think it's happened since. The Supreme Court was asked to rule on whether someone could indeed refuse a presidential pardon. Chief Justice John Marshall handed down this decision. A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives to it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. George Wilson, as punishment for his crime, was hanged. Pardon, declared the Supreme Court, must not only be granted, it must be received, it must be accepted. That's the way it works. Jesus says, I've done it all for you. You can't get there. You don't understand how holy I am. If you have even one sin in in your life, you couldn't stand in my presence. I mean, you would just be reduced to ashes. So I stepped in because I love you so much, little boy. I love you so much, little girl, that I want relationship with you, not only now, but forever. You know, when we get to heaven, we're gonna see Moses and Paul who wrote these passages. We're going to see Peter and we're going to see the disciples and we're going to look over and we're going to see a throne and Jesus is on the throne and there as we fall on our knees we're going to look beside us and on his knees is going to be a serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer and he's going to say thank you God that you're so merciful that as vile a sinner as I was you saved me and all of us are going to know all we can say is amen that's right (laughs) you did it God for all of us doesn't matter where you slept this week doesn't matter what you've done this year God is near and he loves you and he's pulling at you even in this moment it's not an accident that you're here I want you to close your eyes for just a minute If you're here and you say, okay, I've got it now. For the very first time, I got it. What do I do now, Mark? It's as near as your mouth. It's as close as your heart beating in your chest. Just say, Jesus, 
I receive what you did for me. I, I, I receive it. I want it. I want to step into this journey with you full out. I, I don't have the power. I can't do it. I've tried to do it myself. I'll never break this addiction. I'll never change. I, I, I see that. I need your power to do it. Be my boss. Be my Lord. Be my master. I give my life to you right now. I accept what you did for me. What happens? God himself comes to live inside of you. That deep inner part of you, your spirit comes alive. It says he makes you a whole new creation. And in his eyes, you're sinless because Jesus has taken that. And then you begin to walk in that with a new power that changes everything. I want to invite you into that this morning. This God of perfect justice loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son that every one of us in this place today are listening online that believes in him will not perish but we will have a whole new quality and quantity of life eternal life 